chomping on just a little bit because Paul's uh, sermon is so powerful and creates such seismic waves of psychogenetic energy that you cannot, you cannot be exposed to his message without being delayed to whatever you were planning to do. Um, there's a wonderful uh, movie, uh, I think it was, called, what was it, about the Barney Hill and his wife who were abducted by aliens up in Massachusetts, and I think it's called Delayed Appointment. Um, just don't worry when I say that, but whenever, uh, whenever the gospel is truly preached, it delays us. So now we're here and we're getting started, uh, and uh, you know there's coffee in back, and I'm so glad to see you. Welcome especially if you've not been to this uh, class before, this is your first time, all the better. Uh, for me. It's a little tight on the seating right there. We're trying to get this seating right and it's very hard to do it. Let's say the prayer at the top of the page and then we'll go into the really quite important material that, uh, that is being discussed uh, today. Blessed Lord who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, um, I've talked about identity, human identity, which is a huge issue in uh, modern life. Always has been, but is simply a little bit more explicit currently. In the world, uh, identity in terms of social class and identity in terms of uh, maleness and identity in terms of femaleness and then identity in relationship to fathers. What role do fathers play in our identity, all of us? And then what role uh, do mothers play in our own identity? Uh, not so much asking you to look at your mothering, uh, as you may or may not be a mother or a dad or whatever, but how your mother's uh, identity has uh, affected you. We're all children, exactly, and that's universal. And then, uh, and then last week I talked about identity and career. But today I'm going to do... Uh, the next to last on identity, uh, I may do a few more after this, but today I'm going to do um, identity and maybe Heather, you can move in one so Nita, Jean and Frank can sit right here. Thank you so much. Identity, right here Nita, Jean, perfecto. Uh, identity, uh, identity and um, ambition and particularly identity and the experience of wanting to change your husband or your wife or, of course, one of your children, which you can't do, uh, really, or your job. I'm going to talk about identity and the whole urge uh, to change circumstances that comes in life. That's what I'm going to talk about today. And I'm going to talk about it out of the same uh, thing that I talked about last time. And I'm going to read a few chapter of verses and then invite you to join in um, on a couple. This is St. Paul's uh, letter to the Philippians where he is trying to say what it is that he brings to the equation that are worldly goods in the world in which he is navigating. He is navigating a world in which um, uh, some Gentile people, non-Jewish people, have become Christians <coughs> and there's a school of thought in the church 
that says you really can't be a Christian unless you're fully Jewish. That is the school of thought, that, that to really be one of God's people, even if you're a Gentile and have come to uh, believe that this is for you, you cannot be fully Christian unless you're fully Jewish. And uh, he is now talking to these people that are saying about him that his credentials are a little bit lacking. Now, we all know about credentials, and we all know here about lying on curriculum vitae, and uh, a lot of people get into a lot of trouble. A lot of college presidents have had to resign when they lied about their, the, the dean of uh, Portsmouth in England uh, resigned six months ago because he had lied about, he said that he had a doctorate, uh, which he in fact did not have. And so the Anglo high, high level, ha believe me, it happens all the time. You know people, you may be one of them, who, who it's very easy to lie and, and to say, well, I got a degree or I'm about to get a degree, so you act as if you had a degree. It's very easy to, to finesse a, a CV. This man uh, did not, in fact, have an earned doctorate, although he'd done some years of study, and he was caught, uh, and he was... Um, he resigned from being the dean of Portsmouth. Now, he was very badly treated because what happens in the world is people who are senior to you take advantage of uh, th mistakes that you make if they wanted you fired anyway. So his bishop, who I don't think wanted him there in the first place, used this, even though he confessed it very fully. So I'm just saying that CVs you can lie about, but a, but, but a CV can help to put to rest. I'm constantly being reminded, they say, Paul, just Make sure in the book, if you write a book, tell them your academic credentials, because when they just read it, they think you're, you're speaking about things you're not entitled to speak about. They just think you're some Episcopal minister somewhere. <clears throat> I hate to write all that stuff out. To me, it's a positive evil. So I never write in my credentials. Uh, but frequently reviewers will say, who gave this Mr. Zoll in Birmingham the right to say this, that, and the other thing? Because I simply didn't write, write, didn't write out my curriculum vitae in the back. Now, some people, you've, you, some academic people, you wouldn't believe the curriculum vitae they attach. But it's a sore point with me because I don't believe in curricula vitae. I honestly diss them. But I'm often in a situation because I don't get proper that information, <clears throat> I'm not taken seriously. Now, Paul is here uh, saying what is true about his curriculum vitae because he is under attack for being a kind of uh, impostor or an adventurer. You know, uh, sometimes uh, Episcopal ministers trying to win converts in the Hispanic world without ever actually saying it sort of masquerade as Roman Catholic priests. They're not, but the way they look and their tone, I, I would much rather have them masquerade as Pentecostal ministers because <laughs> I'm a great believer in Spanish-speaking Pentecostalism. But there's a subtle thing, you know, are we, are we getting these Hispanic people under slightly false pretenses because we're high church Anglicans? You know, you have to be very clear about what you present. Now, Paul, in this case, who has been called an adventurer or an imposter, <clears throat> now describes what are, in fact, his true credentials. And then, however, he reflects his true attitude about the credentials from the Christian faith. And I want then to talk for just a minute about status and identity and green pastures. All that in... Uh, 20 minutes, and we'll end, we'll end at 20 to 10, so then there can be 10 minutes for discussion. If any other man thinks, verse 4, I'll read this first part, that he has reason <coughs> for uh, confidence in human terms, I have more. I was circumcised in the eighth day of the people of Israel. In other words, he is actually a blood-born, fully vested uh, member of the Jewish people. Of the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin was the favorite son of, 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 uh, of Jacob. And so, uh, is it Isaac? 
Jacob, Jacob's uh, favorite son. And so Benjamin is, is a very, it's a, good, it's a good thing to be of that particular lineage within Judaism. He is a Hebrew born of the Hebrews. Well, uh, you know, he, he, he's, 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 he's really got whatever they, the people he's talking to value. He's got it. Uh, and at, more than that, he's actually followed through on this uh, heritage he has. As to the law of Pharisee, that is to say, I have done very well in being a model sort of um, uh, uh, representative of what I represent. And then he has said, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. In other words, he not only has the ability to say what he is, but he's able to discriminate from what he's not. There's a brilliant review in next week's adventure on a movie called The Banger Sisters by uh, that Carolyn Lankford has written. She almost never writes a negative review because she likes to bring reviews to your attention that your children can go to and you can be pleased to take them. She was so distressed by the movie The Banger Sisters, which I myself has not seen, that she's written a very clever, extremely negative review of The Banger Sisters. Well, whatever you think, uh, Carolyn is both in that sense, uh, uh, she's a Hebrew, she's doing positive, but she's also sees the negation. Uh, you can't say you believe one thing and then not speak out when the opposite is there. I don't mean you have to be obnoxious and difficult and impossible and angular, but you have to know that if you believe one thing, you don't believe another. The two are not, there's truth and there's not truth. There's an A and the B. There's a yes or no. There's not middle ground in many issues. In some issues, of course, there are. But in many issues, there's not. So he, he's that good that he knew what he did believe and he also knew what he didn't. So he persecuted the church. And he says something that you and I could never possibly say, but apparently he said it in good conscience. As far as good living was concerned, no one can throw a stone at me. I have not served a prison sentence. I know a really nice guy in New York. He's one of the nicest Christians I know. But he was caught, not one of my children, he was caught a few weeks ago on his motorcycle out in the country in upstate New York going 40 miles over the state speed limit. <clears throat> he had to spend time in jail because in that municipality, if you go a certain number of miles over the thing, you have to be taken immediately to the judge. And then it's a very, very difficult thing. I don't know where I was going with that. Uh, but the... Uh, the, the, uh, it is amazing how many people, in fact, have been taken to the judge for one reason or another. And unfortunately, he was wearing a black T-shirt with a heavy metal logo, even though he is a very, very devout Christian. Can you stand it? Anyway, he was. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that uh, he, this, uh, he, under righteousness law, whatever gain I had, I count as loss. Now, what he says is, I have this CD, if you must know, but I'd rather not tell you because in particular, whatever I thought that that CV consisted of, I now count as loss because <clears throat> I've discovered, he writes, a different way of measuring my validity as a human being. He calls it the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And as you know, the word for identity in the New Testament is righteousness. That's the word for identity. Righteousness is simply the ability to stand up without, uh, without cringing in the face of guilt. That's, I, I, righteousness is the ability to stand up and look somebody in the eye without cringing in the light of guilt and remorse. And that is righteousness, and that gives you identity. Without that, your identity is flotsam and jetsam and actually a negative set. So he says, um, I fact, I, I have this new thing, and for that reason I've suffered the loss of all things and actually count them as refuse. Now, the verse I want to ask you to read with me is verse 9. Let's read verse 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, based on law, but that which is through faith in Christ, 
the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, these are, um, these are words which, unless they are sort of explained, um, could be uh, fall on empty ears. You might agree with these words at some part of you and yet not uh, have them be a power in your life. You might not understand them, which would be very possible. Or you might, um, you might uh, understand them at one level, but they, they don't quite impact the actual life you live. And uh, what he means is that he has given up uh, of, of believing that his, um, his identity is based on anything that he brings to the equation, either in the way of genetics, environment, or achievement, but that he's been given an identity, that identity is a gift, that it comes to you through God, through uh, whatever's around you, uh, that, which is God. Because you remember, when I say God, I mean whatever's happening. I don't mean God is distinct from what's happening. Your checkmate that you're currently having in life, that's God, according to my gospel. Your uh, bad news that happened this week is not distinct from God. Whatever is happening that you're not in charge of, by definition, is God. That's why all people ultimately believe in God, no matter if they're, quote, religious or not. Every impasse is God. And don't call it God. You can call it fate. I'm happy to call it fate, although that's not a good enough term. Call it destiny. You can call it whatever you want to call it, but whatever the, it's not Jesus Christ. That's, that's a subset of God that it makes it all the difference. But whatever is blocking your life, and similarly whatever is helping your life, that's God. Now, that's called a whole, uh, a, that's called a non-dualistic, uh, um, um, a whole field force theory of life. But the whole thing is God, and God is what we're up against. So when he says, my identity is given to me, when we say a gift, we mean our identity is given from what comes to us. Now, the reason we know this is because of little babies. I don't know, I've never given my big, long lecture on object relations theory. But object relations theory, and we need more object relations therapists. They have, we don't have any in Birmingham, to my knowledge. Object relations therapy simply says the obvious truth that Freud and many others would have known, that the baby has no identity except perspective, that he or she finds who he or she is through the face, the object of the mother, introjected, and then later on through the assistance of the dad. But initially, the identity of the child is derived from the object. The child is not a subject. He derives the identity from the object, and that is why early childhood is such a vital period in people's lives. Whether you agree with that or not, your experience reveals it. But we'll talk about that another time. But whatever it is, Paul is simply saying that. My identity does not mean having a righteousness that I build. My identity is comes to me. It is through faith in Christ who gives it to me, this righteousness or identity from God. Now, let me talk about... I want to give you three examples about how this uh, works and then uh, 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 ask you to think about this. Um, in uh, <clears throat> theology, we are talking about something called the justitia passiva. I've referred to this before, but it's very, very, uh, uh, it's an idea that I draw upon um, uh, 24 hours a day uh, because I'm living it. 
and you are too, although uh, you, you want to think about this. Is to, you have to put your own experience into this grid. <clears throat> justitia passiva and the justitia activa, they're very old expressions, but they primarily come out of the, uh, the interpretation of St. Paul that occurred during the 16th and 17th centuries in the early Protestant Reformation. <clears throat> but it, it, these were categories that had existed in medieval theology, but had been fundamentally misunderstood. And the justitia activa is the, the active righteousness. In other words, when I create my identity by what I do, it's equivalent to saying, you know, I create my own luck. I don't know if you have any very obnoxious, arrogant male friends, but every, there's a line in Titanic. You know, and Jim Cameron obviously believes this, or did. Uh, I make my own luck. You know, uh, when the t going gets tough, the tough get going. I make my own luck. That's called the justitia, not passiva, but activa. The other one is called the justitia passiva. That's my luck is given to me. My, quote, luck. My modus operandi and my modus vivendi. My being is something that is given to me. My, it is not something that I create. It is given to me. That's called the justitia passiva. Now, that's exactly what St. Paul is arguing. He is saying that I want uh, my identity, verse 9, does not consist of my achievements, which everybody here knows, because nobody here wants on your um, uh, epitaph anything that has to do with where you went to college or didn't go to college or the various things you did, uh, or certainly the things that you didn't do. You know, we sang that beautiful anthem today from Psalm 35, or is it 25? Judge me not for the transgressions of my youth. I mean, for heaven's sake. Who here cannot identify with the transgressions of your youth? And your youth usually goes on until you're about 55. <laughs> um, sometimes disease is a painful respite, or a broken limb can be a painful respite to a profligate life. But anyway, um, I, uh, I want to say that the justitia passiva is, when he says, not having a righteousness of my own, that's the justitia activa, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes, it's a gift. Now, in Christian theology, <clears throat> and then I'm going to ex uh, give you examples, there's only one person in truly uh, orthodox Christian theology, and interestingly enough, even in Roman Catholicism, although Roman Catholicism is nervous about this one and doesn't really... He doesn't square very clearly with it, but even in Roman Catholicism, what I'm saying would be considered orthodox. Certainly in the tr traditional Protestant churches of the Reformation, and certainly in Anglicanism, in theory, only one person has ever evinced the act justitia activa. Obviously, that one person is Jesus of Nazareth. He, like that song by King Missile, everything he did, everything he wanted to do, he did. Uh, he was a man who what he wanted to do, he did. And he, therefore, in, in our theology, the ex there is only one person who is ever the justitia uh, activa. It's one man who did this thing. That's the communion service, whatever you want to call it. Human beings, Christians in particular, see ourselves as having the justitia passiva. Whatever we have, we've received. Now, that accords with life, because if you haven't been loved properly, your life is a disaster. And you have to spend many, many years, whether it's in therapy or in the hospital or in a very happy marriage or whatever you want. If you haven't been loved 
properly, which is to say loved in the true Christian sense of grace, you have to spend the rest of your life recovering from being loved wrongly. It wasn't that the person that loved you didn't love you. They did love you, but they didn't love you according to the only way that love really creates growth, which is to be loved truly as gift, not to, not to have to earn it in some way. And so uh, what uh, we find is that we have to constantly discover again that our identity comes from love given, not from love uh, giving. And that's the essence of Christian life. We are a passive religion. We believe in a passive approach to life. Now, ironically, this has created over the centuries very unpassive seeming people. Um, uh, the the uh, <clears throat> the great uh, uh, that book by that terrible Frenchman, but it was a huge book about Western civilization. Not so terrible, uh, but but everybody in all these French intellectuals, they always want to say, how come the, the West has been so productive? How come the scientific? It did not originate in China. I don't care what they tell you, and it did not originate in Morocco. I don't care what they tell you. The scientific method originated in Italy. You can go oh, crazy all you want to go, but if you really the you know as far as quote what we today call uh, the, the progress of science, it is uniquely tied into, with some exceptions of course, but it is uniquely tied into a view of life which somehow came out of Christianity. The easy answer to the question is the ultimate concept of a person's identity not being a created thing but a given thing seemed to create right at the word go in the first century a kind of strange freedom from judgment that allowed people to do things that no one had else done. So St. Paul is the most type A person you've ever met coming out of the most type B theology you've ever heard. And uh, that is the essence. But you all know this from creativity. When you're happily married, you're more creative in your job. If you're unhappily partnered, your work goes to down the tubes. I don't care who you are. You can say all you want. Well, it doesn't enter into it. It does. Stephen Sondheim had to have something going on. Lord knows what it was. But when he wrote West Side Story, there had to be something going on. D.H. Lawrence did not write his great books until... I'm not defending any of that, but it's all tied in the libido. But the point is, you've got to be... But that's a very secular way of saying that love issues in creativity. Or let me put it another way. Belovedness issues in creativity. Now, for those of that reason, I'm going to apply it to three particular cases. And I hope you'll disagree with me. <coughs> but of course, I hope you'll agree with me. <laughs> the first is, <coughs> if you ever think that you can change your uh, happiness level <coughs> by applying for a different job than the one you have, you are completely mistaken. Now, that's my first point. Now, like Paul said in the sermons, we like to say it either or. In 100% of cases, according to this theology, if you believe that by taking arms against a job that you hate, that you applying for a new one, you will find happiness there, you are wrong in 100% of the cases. Now, I'm not saying that sometimes people don't get phone calls that are from God, from the Lord. I'm not saying that letters aren't written sometimes that say, have you thought about? Or uh, I, uh, we have people over here in Macedonia. Paul, come and help us. So he changes his plans and goes to Macedonia. I'm not saying that doesn't happen all the time. But uh, I am saying that any attempt to to try to control your destiny by trying to get another job is doomed to failure. Now, let me say why. That's not me. This, is, this at least, I can say, is of God. Uh, only, be, only for one reason. 
There's only one reason why what I just said is true. It's obviously it's true because we try to be God. We're trying to control our life. And you may say, well, God, didn't God give us the free will? Well, I don't give any of that. But what you, what you may find, but I'll tell you why it's always wrong to apply for a new job if it's in your strength. Always wrong. Because original sin is evenly distributed. That's the reason. You have a job you hate. It's not getting your talents. It's destroying you. You're just more frustrated every day. You have a coworker you cannot stand, and it's not going to change. So you finally start, you know, checking things out and applying and looking. And there are a lot of people that spend their entire lives doing this, spend any time in New York City among what used to be called young professional people. And they are always spending their entire time guarding their options with their resumes. Now, why that never works is because original sin is evenly distributed. The moment you get to the new job, you have the same degree of problem, but it's just in a new area. Uh, let's say, if only I could get my own consulting business. I hate working in the hospital under Mr. Godzilla or Mrs. Godzilla. Or I hate, it's killing me. If only I could have my own consulting business. I think I might be able to swing it. I've almost got enough money to maybe me and my family can sort of let, give me a year to get this thing rolling and I can work in my garage and all this. But then you do it. And what do you always find out? There are other problems that are involved in being an independently employed person. They're different ones, but they're just as many. Or, and so that's the first thing, uh, you, you, you get your new job, you get your new career, and you find that the, the, the things that you were warring against are gone, but they're new problems. And that's because original sin is evenly distributed. Original sin, you know, you formed a new law firm across the street, but you forgot to the one thing. There's just as much sin across the street as there is in the building you were in before. <coughs> So that's the first point. The second thing has to do with adultery. <clears throat> it's an easy target, but it's very normal for people to think in your head, if only I had a different <coughs> husband. Um, <clears throat> this man, and you can use all the fill in the blanks, fill in all the blanks. And uh, if only I had a different husband. Let me tell you what happens. I do a lot of second marriages uh, because we have to, because people come to us in the, from the world. So obviously there are many second marriages, and we're entitled to do it, provided we have a deposition, which the bishop has to sign. It's a long thing, and it's very hard work. But what I, I was sitting there the other day, and this, uh, this man was telling me all about how terrible his first wife was, and the new person was there, and I'm sure he's right. But I suddenly had this flash. What if, you know, let's say my wife or some, any other person you came to know, I could see that person there saying some of these things about me. You know what I mean? I mean, couldn't you? I, I could see this person is telling me about all the problems. Well, we grew apart. After we had children, she was not flexible. I was more, I worked too hard in my career, but all these different things. And I said, you know, I could see someone very near and dear to me saying that. Not my wife necessarily, but, but somebody else I know who's basically okay married but it's saying exactly the same things. And I had this tremendous realization that uh, the idea <clears throat> that you could switch a partner and that you'll find in the, in the new person what you didn't have in the old, well, I mean, the, there are many situations in the world, but the irony is many people who get into the next marriage discover that, yes, the problem I was fleeing is no longer there, but there's a new problem. And this new problem is as demanding and as heavy as anything I could imagine. As a matter of fact, I sometimes wish, if the truth were known, that I were back with the old idiot. Because this, this new person has brought a new phenomenon that I was not fully aware of how strong it would affect our relationship. So you see, if you, now I know what God does is, the marriage is over, and then the Lord works to redeem. The marriage is over, and you know, you're beyond that. 
But initially, if you ever have the greener pasture syndrome with a woman or a man or whoever it is, it's just like a job. Original sin is evenly distributed. That's the second point. The third point was when it comes uh, to retirement or vacations. <coughs> if you think that retirement, uh, that if you can really, there are people who spend a tremendous amount of time figuring out how they're going to retire and the conditions under which they're going to retire and where they're going to retire to and with whom they're going to retire. And if you spend a lot of time doing that, I am totally with you because I am exceedingly interested in retiring to a beautiful place where I don't have to ever travel on an airplane as long as I live. <coughs> That's just me. And I can be with the one I love and the other ones I love, but not all the time. And, uh, and they will come to me because I'm a little older and, you know, your father really has a problem driving and, you know, uh, I, I want... I, and it has to be a beautiful place with great taste. It has to look like Amelia Island, but it can't be, unfortunately, Amelia Island. And, uh, but the trouble is, uh, the same is true of that. You, you have it all figured out, and then you forget that originally, original sin is, is very powerfully engrafted into Beaufort, South Carolina. We had a great line from someone we love. The Episcopal Church in Beaufort, now I'm done, is extremely successful. It is huge, and a very great man named Frank Limehouse is the rector. It's huge. But somebody from there who didn't know that I was thinking these, these thoughts said a while back, uh, she said to me, well, you know, we, our church is doing well, but, you know, I don't like it when all these Yankees come down and they decide to become Episcopalians. <laughs> now, what was she saying? They, because it is the strongest church in town, it therefore becomes the community church. Everybody wants to go to this church because it's a great church. So these, quote, Yankees, if that wasn't bad enough, they decide to become Episcopalians as opposed to what? You know what I mean? As opposed to whom? Well, I mean, give me a break. Uh, so I, <clears throat> I don't want to be one of those Yankees or Alabamians for that matter because uh, I'm not, you know. So all I'm trying to say, think about the justitia passiva in terms of greener pastures career-wise, family-wise, and even future-wise. And tell me now what your thoughts are, your questions, your disagreements, or your comments. Did you have your hand up, Jamie? Okay. <laughs> Who wants to comment on this idea? Uh, that's Lydia. Stand up, Lydia, if you don't mind my asking. You're taking yourself with you. That's very powerful. That's even that's even a more threatening way of putting it. <laughs> You're taking yourself into the new marriage or the new job. I wish you hadn't said that, Lydia.